it is time to get solar powered. We welcome you to another episode of the Solar Powered Podcast. I'm Ryan Hall from Royal Hearts Coaching, royalheartscoaching.com, life and relationship coaching for kings. I had been exchanging emails with a lady named Fiona and about another musician that I'm trying to get on the podcast. And she was like, well, while we work on this, why don't you check out this guy named Jared Lawson? And I'm like, who's Jared Lawson? So I got on YouTube, pulled up your pulled up his stuff, and kind of wonder why I haven't been listening to this guy for years. He's a just a really phenomenal piano player, brilliant vocalist, uh, really kind of a jazzy energy. And uh, it's truly an honor to welcome you to the program, man. Jared Lawson, welcome to the Solar Powered Podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate you having me. No, not a problem, man. Not a problem. And do you find that you get that a lot? Because, you know, you're you're kind of like, I'm an East Coast guy. You're a West Coast guy. You're in, uh, you're still up in uh, Portland, right? Portland, yeah. Portland, okay. Um, you know, we're on different coasts. Do you find that you get that a lot? Because when people are like, who's Jared Lawson? And the, you're just kind of like blowing their mind. It's just like, why haven't I been listening to you for years? <laughs> Um, I suppose I do hear that from time to time. Um, I think I've been kind of flying under the radar for a long time, um, kind of quietly, you know, doing my thing here in Portland. And until, you know, I released my first record at the ripe age of whatever, whatever it was, 36, is that right? <laughs> I think I was 36 <laughs> when I released my first record ever. Um, yeah, I think, you know, even at that point, even though that album did very well for me, um, I never had a proper distribution deal in the United States. So I think even now, um, I'm still trying to kind of build some awareness, um, you, you know, sort of just because of the fact that I never had that distribution in place for that record. Um, a lot of people still here in the States have no idea who I am. Sure. So, yeah. And, you know, and even though we're kind of a growing podcast, I hope I, I hope that this podcast can help get your name and get your music out to a little to a few more people um because you, you definitely deserve it man. thanks man you definitely that. deserve it well i mean kind of tell me about yourself i know that you're um i, I know that uh your first album was when you were in your mid to late 30s and a lot of people when they hit kind of when they like on the cusp of hitting it they're kind of in their they're in their twenties or in their teens. Uh, you kind of toiled away in obscurity for a little while. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I'm. You know, I think for many years I wasn't. I didn't really like take that that leap um, into kind of letting go of everything else and just saying I'm going to jump into music with everything that I have. It took me a minute to like really commit to that. Um, so I was, you know, doing a lot of other odd jobs. I worked as a stonemason for 10 years. I worked as a piano tuner for about six years after that. And all that time I was, I was always working on music. I was composing music and even doing some, you know, some local gigs here in Portland. Um, but I think at some point, actually when I put out the first record and I realized that I was getting a lot of attention, particularly in the UK, um, you know, kind of scattered around through through Europe and Japan. I think it just became really apparent that it was time for me to take that leap. And so I stopped all of my other 
my other jobs and um, I jumped into music with everything I had and started doing, you know, two and a half month long tours and, and really kind of going after it. So, but yeah, it's a scary thing to, uh, you know, when you've got a good job that pays you well, you know what you're doing, you know, you can, you can count on, I can pay my bills every month, you know, and kind of letting go of that and jumping into this other world of the unknown kind of never knowing if I'm going to have enough money to pay my bills or, but it's been very fulfilling in a number of ways. And um, it just feels so great to be out on the road and, and to touch people's lives, I guess, in a way that I never knew was possible that people come up to me at the end of a show and just say, and this is like, you know, improving my life in some way or another, maybe, maybe, somebody's going through something tragic recently and this just completely like brightened up their day. That's, that's kind of what it's about for me. I got it. I got it. Not, you know, and I totally get that because when there's something, when there's something from, I guess something like from way up high that just keeps pulling you in and keep just keeps dragging you in. It's kind of hard to let that go. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. 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 I really get that. But, you know, you know, what, like what was your life growing up? I mean, was there, you know, was there always music on in the house? You know, did you guys have a piano growing up? I mean, uh, like what was your life growing up? Yeah, it was a very musical house. My dad. Um, so my father was a very central figure in my life in terms of exposing me to music. Um, he himself was a musician for a good portion of his life. Um, fantastic jazz guitar player, also played keys and drums. And, um, you know, I think from the time I was very, very young, uh, there were instruments always around. I think I was, you know, tinkering around on the drums when I was two, three years old. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, we had, we had keyboards and, and all kinds of things around just kind of all the time. But I didn't really start to take my own talent very seriously, I think until around 13, 13 years old. Um, that was kind of when I found my way to the piano. And really, I, I, I think I, it's not that I had never played the piano before, but I had never really developed a relationship with the piano until that point. And somehow, you know, I was starting to listen to a lot more kind of harmony rich music you know, I was listening to Take Six and Stevie Wonder and, you know, all this stuff that just really like expanded my ear in a way that was like, man, how can I access that kind of harmony? And the piano was just the logical choice. So, yeah, I think around that age, um, found my way to the piano and started experimenting with my own voice and kind of the relationship between my voice and the piano. And I think, you know, it was it was it was pretty quick that I realized I had something worth pursuing there awesome awesome yeah no take six i can definitely hear a lot of that like really rich especially the vocal harmonies on your latest record <laughs> yeah you. i definitely hear that influence i'm a huge fan of those guys and uh actually i've had the opportunity to meet them and and perform with them as well which has been so cool oh incredible incredible uh yeah what was some of the stuff that was on the uh like on the stereo at home growing up um gosh i mean it's just all over the board you know michael jackson stevie wonder donny hathaway you know aretha franklin etta james all that that great old soul stuff but also lots of jazz records you know my dad was 
really into Oscar Peterson and Errol Garner, some of the, the pianists that be, became my favorites. Um, you know, of course, Miles Davis. Um, and my dad was also super into like Tower of Power and um, like Smart Bill, man. Champlin, <laughs> Bill Champlin and the Sons of Champlin, if you remember them. Oh, I do. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so he exposed me to a lot of that kind of music, Blood, Sweat and Tears. Um, yeah, just a, a, a wide array of music. And even though actually my father wasn't super into classical music, I think he recognized that I, I was, that I, I kind of had an inclination to, to sort of expand my ear in that direction. So he, he actually, I remember at some point he bought me a, a large collection of, it was kind of like a box collection of you know great composers which had like you know Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, a bunch of great composers and I listened to all of that over and over and over. So I began to sort of incorporate classical music into my my awareness at least, you know. Got also. It. Got it. Yeah, yeah, do you feel like do you feel like some of that stuff has influenced your piano playing? Very much so. Yeah, I think so. It may not be super apparent but um I mean, I don't, I don't know how it could not, you know? Um, I mean, there was a period of time when I was so obsessed with Chopin, I literally would just sit around and I never learned to read music by the way, but I would just sit around and just kind of like lift or try to lift, you know, Chopin waltzes and etudes and just by ear trying to, you know, figure them out, which was a great exercise for me as a young player to just kind of sit around and try and figure out what he was doing um, as the just, absolute brilliant mind that he was so yeah that's a little piece a little piece of me i love it i love it yeah it kind of reminds me i my um as we spoke about before we uh rolled the recording my dad was also a musician and yeah. i remember after he passed away i went through his record collection and it was a lot of old you know kind of uh hippie music like jefferson airplane grateful dead mm -hmm. uh hot tuna um yeah stuff like that but there was this one random Tchaikovsky album that he had that I never quite understood until I got his um turntable out and actually press play on it and I get it I definitely get it <laughs> yeah so um I guess how did the um it you know as we spoke about you kind of toiled in obscurity for a while but how did you how did you land that first record deal? I mean, how did you how did you end up putting that first record out, which is a really good record, by the way? Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, so here's what I did. You know, I was so green at the time, and I really had zero experience in the in the music industry. Um, I kind of didn't. I was not aware of the proper protocol. You know, like normally when you want to release a record, you spend a few months to build up some, you know, build up some momentum and awareness about the album you know, that's forthcoming. Um, I had no idea about that. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't go through that protocol whatsoever. I essentially just kind of haphazardly threw the album up on iTunes one day. Um, and I, with zero expectation of what was gonna happen. I was just like, yeah, this is, you know, here's, I made this, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, I, it didn't take very long, maybe a week or two before I started getting hundreds of messages from DJs in the UK. Um, just like, 
all of this buzz and people like asking me questions about who I am and where this music came from and why did they not know about me before now? And it was just, it was really overwhelming at the beginning of that. I know the uh, feeling, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I didn't have a proper deal in place when I put the record out. Um, I just threw it up. It was really well received. And then kind of, you know, after it had been out for, I don't, you know, I don't even know how long. It had been out for a few months, at least. Um, we got in touch with Peter Robinson at, at Dome Records. And he was very interested in getting involved to uh, at least give me distribution in Europe. Um, and then he kind of facilitated another distribution for Japan as well. So I ended up with great distribution all over Europe and Japan and distribution in the United States at all. So that first record, in a way, kind of, I sort of sabotaged it by doing what I did, but also it kind of created this mystique, you know, where people were kind of like, what, where did this even come from? Why did we not know that it was coming or know anything about this guy? Um, so it was a lot of mystery, I think mystery surrounding the album because of the fact that I just threw it up on iTunes. Um, so yeah, so I, I guess I don't regret it now in hindsight, but I do, you know, I definitely appreciate the uh, going through the proper protocol, which of course we did on Be The Change, you know, building up, letting people know that the album is coming months in advance and, and talking about it and doing radio interviews and all of that stuff to, to really um, give it some momentum and, and push in the right direction. I got it. So you're not at the level of Beyonce to be able to release a new album, surprise everybody like, has she even been in the studio? What? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, certainly not on that level. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I know you've mentioned several times that um, a lot of your, like a lot of your early airplay came from the UK. I'm kind of curious as to why that might have been. Um. You know, I think what it is, is there is a large concentration of, of DJs and just kind of tastemakers in that area that are constantly on the lookout for new music. They're constantly on the lookout for the next like soul, jazz, you know, gem. And um, I guess, you know, there was a group of them that really kind of pegged me as that, that, that guy. Um, yeah, so. I got, yeah, yeah, I got that. Cause um, like a lot of the influence, a lot of the, uh, like a lot of the influence I would say would come from that part of the world. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, see, sure. I, I see you on that. Um, and I assume after, after was, were you playing live um, regularly before the record came out or was that something that kind of, came along as a side effect of how the record started to take off a little bit? I mean, I really had only been doing kind of a handful of shows here in Portland. Um, I mean, I was doing like some regular, you know, like I had a weekly Monday night show with um, a couple of other really heavy cats here in Portland, Jay Coder and Reinhardt Meltz. Um, we played as a trio. And it kind of turned into like a really dope vibe, you know, cause we played every week. It was everybody, it was like one of the only places in Portland that would stay open until like 2.30 and you could still get drinks that late. Um, because Portland's a little bit of a sleepy town. 
Um, but yeah, so I was doing some gigs, but I had zero touring experience at that point, you know, leading up to putting out my first record. And then of course it didn't take long after that before, you know, we realized that I had to go. I had to go where the demand was and it was UK, you know, you know, it was, there were a handful of European countries that there was a large concentration of demand. Um, seemed like Paris, you know, uh, specifically in France, Paris was a, was a hot spot. Um, several places in Germany and Italy. Um, and then it kind of just started to spread all over. And pretty soon I was touring in Scandinavia as well and kind of more on the outskirts uh, of Europe. But, but yeah. Yeah, I guess to really answer your question, I was doing gigs up until that point, but nothing on the on the level of, you know, what you experience on on a heavy tour. And, and of course, you know, when you're a young player, when you're kind of new to the touring experience and you don't have a lot of money behind you necessarily. Um, you know, like I was I was having to fund a lot of, you know, the airfare and things on my own. Um, you know, you, you can't really, you can't afford to not gig as much as possible. That's the way to say it. So we were doing, you know, five gigs a week on some of these tours, which is just for a vocalist is exhausting. So I was, you know, getting sick from time to time. And of course, you know, the, the other thing about the touring life is it's so difficult to take care of yourself in the way that you do when you're home. Like when I'm home, I, you know, I'm, I'm very focused on taking care of myself. I eat good. I try to get as much rest as possible, hydrate, all of those things, especially when I know that I have shows coming. But when you're out on the road, it's so difficult. You're rarely getting more than four or five hours of sleep a night, eating what's just available, which is, you know, it's, it's not, you know, there's an occasional gig where maybe you, you get set up in a venue that's like right across the street from a health food store or something where you can <laughs> access the type of things that, that I, you know, I like to get um, into my body. But yeah, most of the time you're just kind of eating crap, not sleeping and having to gig constantly. So it's, it's rough in the beginning. And I think now I can probably, you know, starting to get a little better guarantees on the shows that I do. So hopefully I can start to do a little less uh, you know, maybe, maybe do like three shows a week or. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's yeah. important for, for vocalists specifically to have some downtime, you know, because when your body is your instrument, it's, it, it's just, it requires so much more care. Yeah. Yeah. I can cert I, I can certainly, I can certainly feel you on that. Um, did you do any kind of like vocal training, like, uh, like voice lessons, stuff like that? No, not really. Um, I mean, I did spend a good portion of my life kind of um, singing in, you know, chamber choirs. We, you, you know, you do get a little bit of vocal instruction that way. Right. But no, I never did like proper vocal lessons. Yeah. Which is why yeah. I, I, I think I, I have experienced times in my life where I was using my voice improperly. And actually the past couple of years, I, I had been having some issues with my voice, but um, I'm starting to feel, actually I just did two gigs this past weekend and my voice felt better than ever. I, th I think that, um, yeah, maybe I'm learning to use my voice 
in a more mechanically proper way. And um, yeah, I, th I think that's, I think it's helping. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm reminded, I, um, I, like, I'm reminded of, I read a couple years ago, I read the uh, One Way Out, the, uh, the book about the Allman Brothers band. Oh, okay, and, yeah. so, and like some of the stuff that, I mean, of course there was, you know, all the drugs going on there, but there was yeah. also Greg learning how to use his voice properly. And he, you know, he was sure. kind of like you, he didn't have any like proper voice training, mm -hmm. but like learning how to properly use his voice because, you know, after it, you know, after a week of doing like four shows in seven nights, your voice is going to be shot totally. if you're not using it properly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you're on stage, when you're on stage, it's um, like what goes through your mind when you know you guys are just absolutely killing it, like the like your hands on the keyboard are just like like moving without you even thinking about it your you know your band members and we'll certainly talk about them here shortly but you know your band is just like you're locked in as one like what goes through your mind what goes through your spirit when you're kind of in that moment oh man that's an interesting question and that is such a, like an intoxicating place to be like to be on stage especially with players that you feel very comfortable with players that, that you, let's see, how do I say, you know, I've had times in my life where I've been on stage with players that maybe aren't holding it down as strong as they should. <laughs> and, and, and it's hard to, it's hard to let go and feel free on stage when that's happening. But when you're on stage with players that you have no question as to whether they're going to, you know, they're going to hold it down there's a freedom that happens there and you can completely let go. And, and to be honest, I think it's almost like I stop thinking. It's like, I, I'm almost like checked out at that point and I'm really just in the moment, which for me is saying something because I'm super ADD. Like I'm constantly like, you know, getting distracted by things. But when I'm in that space, in that vibe, and I can let go and totally be in the moment. I'm looking around at the players and we're all just like, whoa, what is happening? This is insane right now. Like that is such an amazing feeling. And I don't quite know what to say as far as, you know, what else I'm thinking or feeling in that moment other than, you know, I think I'm, I'm thinking very little. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really just, it's almost more of an absence of, of what normally is occurring in my head, which is a lot of thinking. <laughs> than to just kind of overthink everything. Um, so for me, that, that's a beautiful moment when I can kind of turn my brain off and really just be in the moment and let go. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you for that question. That's, no, that's no, I, I, absolutely. Because I know I've been in, I, you know, I, I, I love live music. Um, one thing that I absolutely missed during this pandemic more than just about anything, but um, but I know I've been in, been in audiences where, the band and the musicians just weren't really feeling it and they were kind of like going through the motions and you yeah. can absolutely tell but when a band is locked in when a group is locked in it's a magical feeling just 
you know, like sitting out and standing out in the audience. And I like, I really get that because it's, it's almost like a two-way feedback street. You know, it's almost like a two-way feedback street. Cause if you're out there, you know, if if you're on stage and you're in the moment, you know, your audience is picking up on that. It's true. It's true. And, and when you don't have that exchange, you can, you can really feel that disconnect I'm sure on both sides of it, of course, you know, like you're saying, when you're out in the audience, you can definitely tell when it's not, the vibe isn't really happening there. But yeah, when you're on stage and you're not feeling that exchange with the audience, it can be almost crippling. You know, it's like, okay, we're already not feeling it and they're not feeling it. So it's just like, oh man, this is awful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure every musician has been there. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm sure every musician has been there. Yeah. Well, we got to talk about this latest record here because I it, it's hard for me to get it out of my head because when you know when the first YouTube the first YouTube link that I found was a link to something and I couldn't remember it before we recorded here but live at Bird's Basement I believe. Oh yeah. Um and. The first the first link that I clicked on was a song called Love Isn't Always Enough. And I'm like, yeah, I'm an instant fan of this guy. Can we talk? <laughs> can we talk a little bit about your songwriting process? Just like what like what goes into a song like that? Like what like what kind of feeling, what kind of um like emotion goes into that? Because I know you said you never learned how to read music. Correct. Okay. Um, I mean, I do, I, I do get along fairly well with like chord symbols, you know, like if you just like a G 13 sharp 11, like if you just wrote that out, I would know what to play and how to sort of improvise over the top of that. But like a page with notation on it, it's not, that doesn't compute for me. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I sort of know how to read music in terms of like just basic chord symbols, but um, outside of that, I have very little, yeah, not my, not my thing. I hear you. I hear you. Weren't it, oh, you weren't in the school band growing up? <laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, to answer your question, I guess, uh, you know, specifically with that song, I, around the time when those lyrics were coming to me, I was actually, uh, so in, interestingly enough, right when I was putting out my first record, I was going through a divorce. I'd been with a woman for over 10 years. And um, our time had come to a close and it was, uh, it was a very difficult period of time for me. You know, it's like so many incredible things were happening with my album and I was getting all of this attention. And at the same time, I had this really heavy, heavy emotional experience happening for me. And, you know, those lyrics came out. I think it just like occurred to me one day that, you know, you can love somebody, you can love somebody into the ground, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is going to work. And, and that lyric just came to me one day in a moment of inspiration. I was like, love isn't always enough. Like that's, that could be a really nice overall kind of sentiment to sort of build a song around. And um, yeah, and I think I felt like with a lyric like that, I really wanted to give it a sort of 
at least somewhat traditional kind of R&B feel, you know, so it kind of gave it that 6-8 or 12-8 or whatever it is, <laughs> whatever those are, um, that kind of classic, <laughs> right? Like they're kind of, oh, yeah. kind of, you know, almost like waltzy, you know, um, I like that's a that's a classic R&B soul groove. And um, for me, that's like one of my favorite feels in all of music. Oh, yes. Yeah. Some of my favorite Earth, Wind and Fire songs were in that same fit, like that same vibe yeah. right there. Totally. Yeah. There's something about that feel that's like as soon as I hear it, I'm like, OK, I want to hear more. Keep going. Um, yeah. You know, Donny Hathaway you know, of course, was super into that. Oh, yeah. Um, D'Angelo, one of my favorite D'Angelo tunes, of course, the untitled How Does It Feel track is totally that same feel. Well, I haven't heard that one in a minute. Yeah, that I, I, I can hear that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, and then I just kind of began to build a chord progression around that, you know, those lyrics and, and that feel that I think I wanted something that felt sort of classic, but also had a little bit of a, a, a new flair to it, a more kind of modern flair too. So I think that it has a bit of a modern flair to a classic, a classic um, form, let's say. I dig that's it. kind of what I was going for. I dig it. I dig it. Yeah, that's good. I definitely like the, like the, I would have, thought it was would have been in three but like that but like that three six or whatever time signature it actually is um that's definitely the first thing that sticks out to me other than the uh on the uh, album version the the great trumpet intro yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah that's um so local cat max ribner um he actually had just moved oh, out of portland and I hit him up. I didn't even realize he had moved. And I was like, hey, man, I, I'd love to get you on this, this song. And he was like, man, I just moved out of town, but I'll try and get a, you know, a microphone set up and knock it out for you. And when he sent back the track to me, I was like, oh, my God, this is so perfect. It was just like he put so much emotion into it and the beautiful stacks, you know, the, the like harmony stacks that he did. And just some really tasty little lines that he just, oh, you know. Yeah carefully placed in just the right spots it was like it's perfect it's like thank you so much man for blessing blessing the song with just kind of that final cherry on the top so good D did you write it or did he write it uh his horn parts yeah yeah he wrote those okay gotcha yeah. gotcha um yeah I, I i assume that's his horn work over a lot of the record yeah um yeah let's see he did um he did some stuff on what did he do? I think he did just maybe a couple of songs. Um, Soul Symphony, he's of course playing on also. Uh, it might just be those two actually. Because some of the other songs are just kind of more woodwind oriented. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. I got that. I got that. Um, now we got to talk about Be the Change. I mean, it's the title track of the album. It's a just a really deep song. Definitely, like when when I first heard that, I'm thinking, okay, this guy's 
this guy grew up listening to a lot of Stevie Wonder. Is, <laughs> is that where you got a lot? Is that where you got some of the influence of that song? Because I'm definitely getting like a, you know, like a songs in the key of life energy off of that particular song. Ooh, nice. Talk I about like that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Stevie is, a, you know, I, probably my greatest musical hero, I would have to say. Um, and I have a lot of musical heroes, but I think, you know, from the time I was, I was really, I was, you know, fairly young and my dad was playing me Stevie Wonder records, but I think right around that same time as I found my way to the piano, um, you know, maybe around that 12, 13 year old range, I really started to kind of listen to his music again with a, with a different set of ears and realized that what he was doing with music was so different than anything I ever heard. And it was really, it was so, um, I guess, inspiring for me to move in a similar direction. It's like, man, if, if I could do something, not, not that I wanted to model myself after Stevie Wonder um, necessarily, but I wanted to, I, I love the idea of being this kind of, you know, a man that writes his own lyrics, sings his own songs, sings his own background vocals. He's plays, you know, all the keyboards and composing the music and, um, and has a message that really resonates on a deep level. Like all of that was so attractive to me, that total package. And I think it kind of occurred to me that that's what I wanted to do was was not just you know just create beautiful music but to have something to sort of imbue within the music a message that really like you know that really resonates with people and and, and speaks to their heart um i think that was that was so important to me and stevie was hugely influential in that way for me yeah i get that I get that. And uh, just kind of talk about how the, how that song be the change, how that uh, talk about a, a little bit of how that came out, how that came about, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very much. Um, so Sammy Figueroa, who ended up playing percussion on a lot of this record. Um, are you familiar with Sammy? The, the name rings a bell. The name rings a bell, but I, not incredibly familiar now. So it's, it's, it's like it's such a tragic story that Sammy is not a household name because he literally has played on thousands of albums. He's the most recorded percussionist alive. And um, I mean, he, from the time he was, I think he was 18, he got picked up by Miles Davis or 17 or something. He was playing with Miles and, you know, hanging out with Herbie Hancock and all these cats. And, and now, of course, you know, he's, he's lived this, he's 70 years old now, but he... Um, he played with, you know, Shaka Khan and David Bowie and Hall and & Oates and even, even people like Mariah Carey. I mean, he's been all over the map. Um, just an absolute legend. And following a few of my like international tours that I had done in 2016, 2017, um, he had been trying to get a hold of me. And I remember my manager saying to me one day when we were on a bus, we were like in Europe going from one place to another. He was like, man, this percussionist cat, Sammy Figueroa, um, is really trying to get a hold of you. It's like, you should really like look at his bio because it's like a who's who of the music industry. You, you would not believe it. So I started reading about him 
And I realized that I, I was aware of him, but I, I just didn't recognize his name, you know, kind of like you, but um, as I began to read some of it, I was like, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that record. He's on that, whoa, that's crazy. You know, all these albums that I realized I was familiar with and I had been listening to him for years and never, you know, I, I just didn't have his name in my awareness so much. So at some point he finally actually reached out to me uh, he got an email address for me and sent me a, a beautiful email just saying how much he loved my music, um, that he was playing my music on, a, he does a local radio station out of Miami and New York. And, um, and he said he wanted to make a record together. So I gave him a call one day and we started to kind of discuss the possibility of doing a project. And I said, man, I would love for you to just come out here to Portland maybe spend, you know, four or five days and we can just hang out and, you know, you can just get creative, throw some ideas out and see what happens. So we made that happen. And um, I borrowed some congas from a friend of mine, set them up in my, my home at the time with some nice microphones and I had an acoustic piano in there. So essentially Sammy Figueroa and I just sat around in a room and, and messed around and, um, and out of those sessions, we actually, somehow I was inspired to, <laughs> after the fact, I ended up composing Be the Change. Um, it was kind of just inspired by being around him and kind of talking about bringing Latin music and soul music closer together. And we had talked about a message and, you know, Be the Change those words kind of came into the conversation. And I was like, man, Be The Change would be such a fantastic universal message that everybody can get on board with. And um, yeah, I think we just wanted to write something really powerful and inspirational. And this of course was like back in, I wanna say 20, yeah, it had to be 20, this is 2017 or something like that. Um, so yeah, it was not, a lot of people assumed that I wrote the song, you know, during the pandemic or, or, or kind of surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement or something. Um, but it was, it was a few years before all of this, these past two years of madness occurred. So yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the backstory on that. It was, really, it was really inspired by coming together with Sammy Figueroa and being very inspired by his presence in my life and him as a musician and his you know, he, he just was, he's like such a, a fervent, excited person. Like he just like, man, I love your music. I really, I think that we can create something incredible by bringing what you do and what I do together. And that's really what Be The Change is in a way. It's like, um, even though we didn't compose the song together, it's very much inspired by him, I would say. And I'm so honored to have him on the album. Um, it's just a phenomenal percussionist in Conguera. Uh, totally, totally. And as you were talking about him, I pulled up his Wikipedia page and yeah, you're not kidding. He's been on a lot of stuff that I have, that I've already heard, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, my, everybody from Miles Davis to Debbie Gibson. Right. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's insane. But yeah, when you pull somebody with that kind of like cachet into the room, you definitely want to pick his brain, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's such a, he has wonderful ideas. Like 
we would just be sitting around and he, he would be talking about like horn parts that he was hearing over the top of whatever, you know, thing that I had composed. And he would just be like vocalizing, like, like he just, he'll just sit there and vocalize an entire like horn performance over a song. And I'll just be like, oh my God, I wish I had just recorded that. Cause that was all brilliant. What you just did. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, uh, Let me get cool. on my iPhone and can you do that again? <laughs> right. Right. And he can, he will. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it just, you know, when, when that creativity is just on point, it's, it's really a magical feeling. I, I, and I would say just kind of a similar feeling to what you were, what you were describing when you're really in the moment and really feeling a live performance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of live performance, talk about your band. I mean, your band is phenomenal. Um, you know, talk about the cats you play with. Yeah, so the band that I've been touring with uh, these past couple of years is, um, for my for my taste and my money, um, the best young drummer coming out of Portland right now. His name's Corey Lemwako. He's twenty five years old. Twenty is that right? Twenty five or six years old. Um, he started playing with me when he was twenty three. I think that sounds right. Yeah, and and I, I try to point that out at like every show because you just can't believe that somebody of that age has so much. Um, I, I don't know. He plays with this this. I don't know. It's like he's just seasoned. He plays with like a the the kind of playing that that you would expect from a much more seasoned player. I should say, like a wisdom beyond his years. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But he also has that young fire, you know, he's got that ambition and that fire. He's just like hungry. So he brings this excitement to the music that's infectious. And I think when he and Sammy got together for the first time, it was at a show that we did in Miami just a couple of years ago at uh, these beautiful tropical botanical gardens there in Miami. And the two of them met and started to play together for the first time. And it was like, I could just see the wheels turning. Both of their eyes like got big and they were like, whoa, this is amazing. The two of them playing together. It was like the 70 year old man and this 24 year old kid. It was like, it was a marriage that was just so magical. So they kind of became this new rhythm section for my band. And then of course I've got uh, Christopher Friesen on the bass who's been with me for a really long time. Um, it's kind of the heart and soul uh of the band for in, in a way for me because for one reason he's one of my best friends in the world and um we have a sp very special connection and the base of my music is such it's i don't know I, it's not not that the rhythm isn't just as important but for when i'm composing the music the bass is such a central piece that i compose as I'm composing my music, I'm always composing the bass with my left hand as I'm, that's kind of, well, to get back to one of the other questions you had asked about my composing style, it's usually I'm at the piano and I'm kind of coming up with the chord progression with my right hand as I'm composing a bass line with my left hand. So to have somebody that really like gets what I'm going for with these bass lines, like really, you know, he, he takes those lines and he owns them and he plays them his own way also kind of gives them his own flair. But um, but yeah, Christopher's just such a badass. Absolutely adore him. And then of course we added um, Mr. Trent Barspool on the guitar. 
kind of just just in the last couple of years as well. So he's new to the band, and he's just also now becoming one of the most uh, in demand guitar players here in Portland. I'm about to say he's bad too. He's super bad, super bad. Yeah, and a, and a sweet humble cat. Every that's the other thing about this band now. This this quintet that I've been touring with. Everybody's so cool. Everybody's so chill. Like when the five of us are just hanging out, like on our downtime, there's no drama ever. It's just everybody is so cool and we all love each other. It's like this, this beautiful little brotherhood, um, which is so rare. I don't know, <laughs> I, I, you know, how often you hear that. It's probably not very often, I wouldn't think, because I hardly ever hear that. In the music business? Oh, no. Yeah. It's, it's very rare. No, totally, totally. And I would say that that trust and that brotherhood and that camaraderie really shows when you guys are not just in the studio, but when you're on the stage and just being able to trust that your bass player is going to be able to know where you're going and your drummer, you know, just to know where everybody's going to be going when you're really like when you're really in that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, I, I got to know that I got to know that I can actually stop playing and these guys are going to totally hold it down. If I want to just like improvise or, you know, do something completely unexpected. And that's, I, I really feel that with these guys. Um, it's, it's like that support underneath me that feels so assuring and supportive. Um, yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I love it. Uh, you itching to get back on the road and start touring again? Actually, I'm starting to, yeah, really feel like I'm, I'm ready. I do have some shows coming up in London uh, with the Jazz Cafe in October. Um, and, if, and it's looking like we're going to expand that tour um, to do some more shows in the UK. And, and who knows? Yeah, maybe we'll be able to build a little European tour around that. But I just started doing local shows again here in Portland and it's felt so good to play again and just uh, kind of be in the room and bring the community together and have that, that energy exchange with them again. It feels, it feels fantastic. So I can, I can only imagine. And if you when and if you get out to the East coast to, you know, to the New York city, Connecticut area where I am, I'd love to see you. Well, man, the, it's you, definitely man. in the plan. I, I, can't wait now before we go and thank you so much for your time and your generosity today but before we go we got to talk there's a really just really cool i heard it maybe the for the first time about an hour and a half ago just a really cool remix that somebody has put together on be the change and it really makes it a totally different song but it's still got that same energy yeah yeah i would actually argue that it has more energy um, it's a little bit more, you know, it's kind of a house, a little more of a house, almost got this like Mediterranean feel. Um, yeah, this cat, Michelle Chiavarini over in Italy, it's like a phenomenal, he's not just, um, he's not just a guy that does remixing, you know, he's like, he's, he's a proper, like he plays keyboards, he's an arranger, he's, he's an incredible musical mind. And I think that when we were kind of searching around for somebody to remix this song, we realized that he was the guy because he has, you know, to take a song like this, 
it's it's one thing to take a song that has just a few chord changes and adapt it to a re, to a house remix. It's very simple. Um, but to take a song like this that has, you know, um, it has a lot of complex harmonic movement happening within there. So to you know, to give it a proper treatment, it really needed somebody with a musical background, like he has um, in composition and arranging. And I think he did a fantastic job of really adapting it in a beautiful way. And he got um, this trumpet player, Graham, I think is his name, Flowers, is that right? To, uh, to play some live trumpet on it. And it, yeah, it just sounds fantastic. It really does. And sometimes those house remixes can be a train wreck, but this really isn't. It's true, they can, they can go awry real, real quick. <laughs> Well, Jared Lawson, it's been a true privilege getting to know you a little bit and uh, hearing a little about your process. And um, I, you know, thank you so much for your time. And how can people find you, my friend? Um, you can find me on, well, my website is just jaredlawson.com, real easy. Um, I have a Bandcamp page as well. You can search my name and find things on Bandcamp. Um, I'm of course on Facebook, it's Jared Lawson Music, yeah. um, and Instagram. Uh, my handle is at J Law Sings, J L A W S I N G S. Um, yeah, but thank you so much for having me today, Ryan. Really appreciate oh, my talking pleasure. to you. Um, and thank you for just asking interesting questions and making it very interesting and engaging for me because it's not always that way. <laughs> I can only imagine. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time today. And uh, thank you so much for listening to the Solar Powered Podcast, a presentation of Royal Hearts Coaching. For more information, you can find me at royalheartscoaching.com. You can follow me on the social medias at Ryan Hall Writes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just shoot me a good old fashioned email at Ryan at royalheartscoaching.com. But that'll do it for this episode. Until we meet again, this is Ryan Hall saying thank you so much for listening. I love you all. So long for now and go get solar powered.